Uh, the passage today is John chapter 21, verses 15 to 25, uh, which can be pay, pay, find, found on page 1090. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I, do, I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you, to, lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're still sitting in the Easter period. I know not many of us are liturgists, but we spend 40 days preparing for Easter, the season we call Lent. We're actually supposed to celebrate Easter for 40 days. And uh, this morning, I want to continue the idea of the resurrection, the idea of what is the implication of the resurrection. And I think the resurrection has great implications for us. This week, as I was uh, looking at some of the uh, stained glass, I realised that we actually have some great stained glass windows that point to the resurrection. So I'd encourage you to have a look at those maybe after the church service uh, this morning. And um, even, even the one there that's the Ascension, uh, it sort of points to uh, our Matthew reading. And before we started in Lent, we did uh, the Great Commission, where Matthew, uh, we started in 20, chapter 28, which talks about the resurrection and then the commission. And so the resurrection actually sends us out. So I want to get on to speaking about Peter's restoration, but before I do that, I want to share with you a story 
and this story is from the medical profession. So if you are trained in the medical profession, you've probably heard this story and can give it better than me. But I heard this story this week and it, to me it sums up the idea that sometimes the truth is overlooked because it challenges people beyond their comfort zone. So the, the truth is overlooked because it challenges people to go outside their comfort zone. So it's not that people deny the truth, it's just that the truth would actually lead to them having to change their behaviour. They don't want to change their behaviour, so it's easier to just turn a blind eye to the truth and to the evidence. The, the uh, Dr uh, Zemmelweis was a Hungarian doctor who worked at the Vienna General Hospital. He is known to be the father of hand hygiene. And you might think, what's the point of hand hygiene? Well, in 1846, Zemmelweis noticed that women who gave birth in a particular hospital, if they gave birth to a student, a medical student or a doctor, then they were much more likely to develop a fever and die than the women who gave birth in, an, in another ward which was run by midwives. So, a huge death rate run by doctors and a minimal death rate run by women who were midwives. And so, Zemmelweis started to think, what's going on here? He wanted to know what was causing such a huge disparity. Was it actually something to do with more than the medical training of these two groups. Zemmelweis actually studied what happened with the women midwives and then he studied what happened with the male doctors. And this is a long time ago and before they even knew about bacteria. And what he actually noticed was that there was this peculiar thing where the, the students and the male doctors would actually go and perform autopsy in the morning and then they would go and help the women give birth later in the day. Now you, understanding medical hygiene, probably can see the major problem here. So what Zemmerweis demanded of the doctors in his team was that they'd actually wash their hands and clean themselves after performing the autopsies and guess what happened? the death rate plummeted to the comparable level to the women who were midwives who had nothing to do with performing autopsies. Now, we might hear this story of Zemmelweis and think, well, he's the great leader that led to the revolution of medical practitioners. But if you know the story of Zemmelweis, he actually presented this to the head of medicine for this hospital and the head of medicine for this hospital said that that was a ridiculous idea and that they shouldn't have to worry about cleaning their hands. It had nothing to do with hand hygiene. Armed with the evidence, he was overwhelmingly rejected. When he tried to spread this idea across hospitals in Europe, he was overwhelmingly rejected. Armed with the truth of what would lead to a comparable outcome for women, the truth which confronted the male doctors, implying that they would have to change their behaviour, they rejected the truth so that it made them feel comfortable in their situation. Zemmelweis 
even though he seemed to have the evidence and the scientific research behind him, because it was a burgeoning area of research, he was overwhelmingly rejected and they actually ran him out of the medical profession. It would actually take decades later before his research was implemented more widely. I think this idea of Semmelweis, and the reason I'm sharing it with us this morning, because we might think, what's the, what, what does hand hygiene have to do with the resurrection? There is no direct link between hand hygiene and the resurrection. But the idea is that faced with obvious truth, when it leads to having to change your behaviour, people learn to turn a blind eye to the truth. And when we look at the resurrection, there is no evidence whatsoever that the resurrection didn't happen. The reason people reject the resurrection is because the implication of the resurrection is so transforming. To understand the resurrection leads to behaviour change, leads to a whole worldview change. At the day of the resurrection, everything in church history, everything in world history radically changed and the world was never the same after that. The question is, do you accept the truth of the resurrection and the implications for your life or do you think that leads me to change my behaviour and therefore I'll reject it? And I think we can see, I mean, Semmelweis is one example. We could list a whole lot of examples where truth is really obvious, but people reject it. Here we have a story in John's Gospel from somebody who was an eyewitness to Jesus. John here says that he shared a life with Jesus. He is an eyewitness to everything that happened to Jesus. And so, John is not just an eyewitness, he actually says that he is the one who leaned against Jesus. He was close enough that he could touch Jesus. And if he's the one who could touch Jesus at the Last Supper, then according to the Scriptures, he's actually involved in the story and the narrative a lot more. This actually makes him the disciple that stood at the cross next to Mary, his mother, the mother of Jesus. So, if, Jesus, if, if John's the writer of this Gospel who leaned against Jesus, it also makes him the one who stood at the foot of the cross. And if he's the one that stood at the foot of the cross, then he's also the one who ran to the tomb when he heard the news that the tomb was empty and he runs to the tomb and he sees that the body is no longer there. And if he's the one who did that, then he's also the one who is having breakfast with Peter and, and Jesus after the resurrection. So, the writer of this Gospel is so connected to being an eyewitness. He's, he, in the court of law, he would be like the perfect witness. He was there for so much of the story and can be an accurate, credible witness. So, let's be clear, if people reject the resurrection, it's not because of a lack of evidence. It's because of the implication of the resurrection leads to such a questioning of our worldview, of our behaviour, and our sense of individual freedom, that people find it easier to reject the resurrection, not based on evidence, but because of the implications for them. So, John Dixon, who's a great historian and, and a great Christian writer, would say that there's effectively no historian that, that would deny the historical account of the resurrection. It's just the implication 
of the resurrection that is what people reject. So in this passage, I want to deal with the implication of the resurrection. The implication of the resurrection in this passage is that Peter is restored. And during Lent, we spoke about how the Kingdom of God breaks into the world and when the Kingdom of God breaks into the world, it'll actually begin an era where we'll see the restoration of all things. And so, as we think about the Kingdom of God breaking into our world and the restoration of all things, which begins at the resurrection, then the restoration of Peter here is is a foretaste or an example of this restoration of all things. You see, the most important restoration of all things is actually the restoration of relationship between God and His people. Peter was called into relationship. Uh, If we go back in the story to the beginning of the story between Jesus and Peter, we actually hear a story where Peter is out fishing and he's out fishing and, and they've caught nothing all night and this person on the shore says, how about you throw out the other side and they do and they... Uh, bring in a miraculous catch of fish. So, you can imagine at the end of the story in John's Gospel when this stranger says, throw your nets over the other side, no wonder the fishermen say, it's the Lord, because it's the same thing happening at the beginning and the end of their relationship together. But Peter is called into a relationship with Jesus by Jesus. It's not like Peter is running around Jerusalem and and Judea looking to follow a rabbi and he sees a couple of rabbis and then he sees Jesus and he says, can I follow you? No, Jesus comes into the life of Peter, disrupts his whole life and says, come and follow me for what purpose? To be a fisher of people. Stop fishing for fish and come with me and fish for people. It's Jesus who calls Peter and gives him a new purpose, this new purpose to follow him and to fish for people. Later in John's Gospel, as we heard here, he reframes that purpose as feed my sheep. He uses the same image, one's a fishing image, one's a a, a shepherd image, but it's the same concept, care for God's people. So, Jesus had a plan and a purpose for Peter before Peter even knew what that purpose was. And the culmination of this relationship, of a called relationship where Peter is called into a relationship with Jesus, is in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 16, where Jesus is asking the disciples, who do the crowds say I am? And they give a whole lot of different uh, explanations. And then he says to Peter, who do you say I am? And the response of Peter, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. On that testimony, that testimony that Peter gives, Jesus says he'll build his whole church. He says he'll build his whole church on the testimony of Peter and other disciples who proclaim Jesus as the Messiah or or the Christ. Jesus calls Peter gives him a new mission, a new purpose, and that's to do with his mission to build the church. But then the the relationship is broken. On the night when Jesus is arrested, and we heard this on Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, on the night before Jesus died, when he was arrested, who takes out a sword and thinks that they're going to fight their way out of it? It's Peter. Peter doesn't understand what Jesus is about to, to do. 
And that idea of Peter whipping out the sword and cutting off the ear is kind of the beginning of a really bad night for Peter because it breaks the relationship. The relationship is broken because then Peter, uh, Jesus goes to be on trial and, and is, is with the, the high priest and, and Peter denies knowing him three times. The very person who said, you know, we won't let you die, we're not going to let them take you when they do take him and they ask him, do you know him? He denies three times. And Jesus had predicted that he would d- deny him three times and had told him. And when he's walking into that, he still doesn't get it and he falls into what Jesus had already predicted. And then as Jesus is hanging on the cross, where is Peter? He's nowhere to be seen. Where's, Jesus, where's Peter when Jesus needs to be taken off the cross and put in the tomb? He's nowhere to be seen. At this point, the relationship seems to be broken. But remember that when Jesus said that the kingdom of God breaks in, that all things would be restored. So Jesus, even though Peter is the one who has broken the relationship that he's been called into, remember Jesus initiates the relationship, it's Peter who breaks the relationship and therefore notice it's Jesus who initiates the restoration. Here in John 21 we see Jesus making the first move to restore the relationship. See Jesus knew that Peter had denied him three times, he had predicted it and therefore to kind of hug it out so to speak as we would say is not going to be enough it's not just enough for them to have a very kind of manly gaze at each other where they don't speak any words and they just kind of look at each other and give a nod and go yeah I know yeah we're, we're good again that wasn't going to be good enough he needed to ask him three times so that each one of the times that Peter had denied him was restored Peter had denied him three times Jesus is going to ask him three times so that the restoration is complete. He gives him three opportunities to testify that he loves Jesus and each time Jesus sends him out on a mission. So notice he says, do you love me? And he says, yes Lord, you know that I love you and he says, feed my lambs. Then he says, take care of my sheep and then he says, feed my sheep. It's not, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, and he goes, great. No, it sends him back out on mission, sends him back out onto the purpose that he called him for. He didn't say, go and fish, but we, we know that it's the same image. It's the image of going out on mission for the purpose that Jesus had called him into. So, it's, it's, I think this is a great story and, and it's such a, a wonderful encouragement to us. Because Peter is restored back into right relationship. But it's not just about stored back into being best buds, it's actually about restoring the reason that Peter had been called in the first place, which is to fulfil the Great Commission. Jesus had called him to come out of his fishing days to go and be an evangelist and Jesus is restoring him so that he can continue to go out on that. I think the reason that he's not at the cross and he's not at the tomb is because he's away hiding and feeling bad for himself and Jesus probably knows that as well and he knows that he has to restore him to restore his hope so that he can go back out on the mission. You see in our world things break down 
and, and, and things don't go the way that we want it to go. Why does somebody get sick? Why does somebody get a, a diagnosis that will lead to death? Why doesn't somebody get the job? And, and everybody wants to know the why question. Everybody asks the why question. But creation and humanity were designed for a much greater purpose, a much greater purpose than what we see. God created humanity and God created creation to be perfect and to have a great purpose, but it was sin that came in and broke that purpose, destroyed that purpose and brought frailty and brokenness into the world. God created the world for a much greater purpose and it was humanity that broke that. A bit like how Peter was the one who broke the relationship. God had called Peter into relationship, God had called humanity into relationship and it was humanity, it was Peter who broke that. But just like Jesus restores the relationship with Peter taking the first step, it's God who restores the relationship with all of humanity by taking the first step to send His Son Jesus into the world. So it's God who makes the first step, the first move to restore all things. And so when Jesus comes into our life, when we hear the good news of Jesus, we actually start to see the truth about our own life, don't we? We start to see the truth of our own actions. I think in a way, when the Gospel is presented to us, I think it actually sounds a little bit like Semmelweis saying to the doctors that they need to change their actions. It sounds like this can't be true. The way that I've always done things can't be that wrong. It can't be leading to death. And yet the reality of sin and guilt and shame is that it does. It pulls us down rather than lifts us up to the purpose that God had created us for. I think in the same way that Peter lost his sense of purpose when his relationship with Jesus was broken, I think so many of us and so many people in our world today don't understand their God-given purpose because they're not in right relationship with Jesus. And if we come into a life-giving relationship with Jesus, we actually start to understand our God-given purpose in a whole new way. I think that's why when we see a new Christian who comes to faith, they're so alive because it's not only do they understand that God loves them, and that they have a way of entering into eternal life, but I also think they understand their God-given purpose in you. And so people think that individualism is the goal in our world. They think that total freedom to do whatever I like is the goal. But I think we'd actually have a look at society and would say that total freedom and total individualism isn't working for us, is it? But I think those of us who've given up individual freedom and individualism to follow Jesus and to come into a life-giving relationship with the Christian community, I think all of us would say that we've gained the great blessing of being in community. I think a bit like Peter who, when he was restored into right relationship, gained the sense that actually serving the greater good is a far greater purpose than just being a fisherman and getting enough money for myself to be able to feed my family. When we give ourselves to the great mission of Jesus, we actually serve a higher purpose and we actually get a more fulfilling life. Because unlike what the, our hyper-individualistic society tells us, 
the greatest way to feel a sense of purpose is actually by serving others, giving up our needs to serve others. The resurrection is the greatest event in the history of the world. The resurrection reminds us that we don't have to fix ourselves up, that we don't have to somehow be good enough to earn the love of other people. The resurrection is an invitation to be restored into a God-given purpose and to restored into a life-giving relationship with God. I, 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 this, is not, I, I, this, is, this is not what many other commentators would say, this is just the opinion of Mark McDonald. But I look at the, 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 the last verse there of, of, of John's Gospel and I, and I think that actually applies to the stories of all those who've given their life to Christ. You see, if we take a, 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 a very kind of short snapshot view, we might think John's actually talking about all the things that Jesus did while He was here on earth and that's probably true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough books, uh, enough room for all the books that would be written. Imagine if you wrote the story of how God's transformed your life. That's the books that I think the world doesn't have enough room for. The stories of transformation that have taken place in the name of Jesus, in the lives of individuals. But the, the collective of all of that is what we call the church. The stories that have been written and yet to be written. Because it's probably even more about how God is transforming us that needs to still be written. My encouragement to all of us in this Easter season is that we would acknowledge that our story, if we're a follower of Jesus, our story of being restored into right relationship with Jesus and being given a God-given purpose is a story that's in the collection of heaven. But I'd also hope that we would be earnestly praying that even more books would be, that even more people would come to know Jesus, that even more people would be restored into right relationship and that even more people would come to know their God. So let me pray. Gracious God, we praise and thank you for your son, Jesus, that through him we are restored into right relationship with you and that through him we can understand our God-given purpose. Fill us with your Holy Spirit in order that we would live out the mission that you've called us to. But Lord, we, don't, we pray that it just doesn't stop with us, that it continues to be more people coming to know you, more people being drawn by your Holy Spirit into a life-giving relationship with you and that their book too may be written in the, in, the, in the library of heaven, the stories of those who've been transformed by Christ. And we make this prayer in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.